Welcome back to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I'm really excited you guys are here with me today. I get to introduce you to my editor, Carolyn Murnick. She is helping me write my memoir, but more importantly, she's helping me think about the process of using writing as a way to manage your grief. She's written an extraordinary book about her friend who was murdered. Come and listen to us talk a bit about how writing and words help us with our narrative around grief and loss. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I am here today with Carolyn Murnick. Carolyn is a veteran magazine editor and author of The Hot One, a memoir of friendship, sex, and murder, recommended by NPR, Entertainment Weekly, and Elle Magazine, and named a best book of the year by BuzzFeed and the New York Post. She received an Emerging Writer Fellowship from the Aspen Institute, and her personal essays have appeared in numerous anthologies, including Lost and Found, Stories from New York. She lives in Brooklyn. Thank you. I I feel like we have to say another reason that we know each other, which is a, you know, testament to your own work outside of grief therapy, which is that you're a fellow in the inaugural class of Zibi Owens Moms Don't Have Time Fellowships, and I'm one of the editorial consultants with the fellowship. So we're working together also on an editor writer level as well. This your listeners need to know that. Yes. My listeners need to know that. And so Carolyn is my editor. She and I right now are, she's working on many projects, but she is helping me trundle through my memoir, which is a beast of a piece of work. And she has been very graceful in helping me learn how to be a memoir writer instead of a blog poster. Also, one thing I know about Carolyn is that she is very good at celebrating other people's achievements. We have meetings and she says lovely things about Mm -hmm. everyone else. She's a very good celebrator. Thank you. When you get an editor, the first thing that you do is read their book. And Mm -hmm. Carolyn's book, The Hot One, is it's an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary life story. And it's really beautifully written. It's very compelling. I think I've told her before, I read it in like, you know, maybe 72 hours. As you know, the podcast, it really helped, the intent of it is to help people get a grasp on how we process the feelings that are connected to grief and loss when we are done crying or when we're not crying. In my office and in my writing and in my writing workshops, people often ask that question. Well, you know, I didn't really cry that much or, you know, I'm more grief adjacent, meaning my family is not the center of the story. It was a neighbor, but just how do we manage those difficult feelings? How do we grieve? And I would love for you to tell our listeners, if they're not familiar with your book, what it's about and the process of writing and, you know, all the things. Sure. So I'll share a little bit about The Hot One. It's a female friendship memoir crossed with a true crime mystery about my search for answers surrounding my childhood best friend's murder. And that's really the very concise kind of elevator pitch of the book, but it's a It's a story that covers a big chunk of my young adulthood. My childhood best friend, Ashley, was murdered when we were 22, and she and I had grown up together in New Jersey, and I considered her my my first best friend. But then her family moved to California in the middle of high school. We kept in touch as best we could. This was kind of before email and texting in the early in the mid 90s. We kept in touch as best we could and we saw each other a few times and during those years. But 
as we got into later high school, it was becoming clear that our friendship dynamic was beginning to change, that we were moving in two different directions, that Ashley was becoming someone that was a little bit more advanced when it came to dating and drugs and sex and risk-taking. And she was very free-spirited in in the way that I was much more self-conscious. And then what ended up being the last time we saw each other was in 1999. I was 20 and she was flew in from LA to stay for a few days. And that was kind of a huge reckoning. And it was kind of the weekend that changed everything in a way, because it was clear that the person that was my childhood best friend has become something different at that point. Now, looking back, I see that as kind of a very common experience that you have growing up where you a lot of things happen between high school and college and you start out with a lot in common and you can really have your set experiences that are very parallel, but then you, you go out into the world. And then when you see your friends again from high school, even though it's only been a few years, a lot looks different. And that was very much what, what was going on between Ashley and me in a sort of extreme way, because Ashley was living a very glamorous kind of party filled Hollywood lifestyle that really um, intimidated me. She seemed to have, you know, extreme confidence, both about whatever she was doing and also about men and about dating and sex. And she talked about dating actors and working in the sex industry and stripping and older men that were buying her clothes and paying for the lease on her car. There was all of that that was kind of blowing my mind, but it was also I realized being around her made me feel very self-doubting and insecure and made me feel like, does Ashley have life figured out? And I'm, and I'm the one that's really just immature and a mess. It felt like my life choices and her life choices and where was our friendship. It was a ton of feelings going on. And I was too immature at the time to express any of those things. All I knew is that I barely recognized the childhood friend that I used to know. And when she left that weekend, I felt, I'm not sure what the future of our friendship is. I, all I know is that her life really intimidated me and confused me. And, and I felt very insecure being around her. So I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen next for us. One thing that I noticed in the book, which I really took in from a therapy standpoint as a therapist, when you write about her, you're really writing about yourself in reaction to her, yeah. which feels very adult and grown up. And I assume was intentional because I think yeah. what actually happens for most people, and this does circle back into grief and loss, you identify really beautifully that, that the problem was how you felt in relationship to her. Yeah. Her life is not really a problem for you. It's her life. Right. It's that being around her and being connected to it generates all of these feelings of insecurity for you. And in grief right. and loss, that is a huge theme, which is something irrevocable happens to you. And then you come out into the world and people don't know how to be near and close to you because you feel different to them. Yeah. And what you hear a lot from people who are particularly in early grieving, I'm a couple of years into this and I still have this, is friendships really bang around here mm-hmm. because, and they don't all make it because there are yeah. some friends and I have a friend right now who I think is sort of waiting for me to go back to normal right. and I will never go back to where I was because yeah. 
I've said this to you before, but just like becoming a parent, like I'm a griever now and I'm, I can't go back there. Yeah. I'm curious about that because I really did notice it in the writing. Yeah. And I felt like, wow, this is such a good, like non grief related example Mm -hmm. of, of how we can experience the problem of relationship without having to vilify the other person and say that they are a bad person. Because I think that's what's, maybe immature isn't the right word, but I think that's what we're more prone to do. We're more Mm -hmm. prone to say a lot of you statements. You know, this person is, actually is too risky, doing too many things. Yeah, I think all those ideas are right on. And that, all of that touches on what the title of the book one of the reasons the title of the book resonated with me, you know, you can hear it a few different ways, but the idea of the hot one is just kind of those words are, it's in reference to something else. There's one hot one and there's one smart one and there's a sporty one. And so I really wanted to explore how those names, how those labels for girls come about and how they start to affect your sense of self. And so how really the fundamental ways your childhood friendships can shape your life just by the roles you end up playing in reference to one another when you're young and how those kind of stay with you. You know, maybe Ashley was the hot one in one group in a different group, she might be the smart one and what might've happened if we had different situations where we kind of inhabited different parts of ourselves. But also the other thing about the hot one, it's a, you know, it's a construct. It's about how others see you. It's not a real thing, but yet the way, obviously, as you know, the way others see you can start to infuse your sense of self as well and and how you operate in the world. And I think Ashley now, you know, 20 years later, I have so many thoughts about women and sexuality and objectification and how male attention can really form your identity when you're very young. And so I think actually represents a lot of conflicts in how she was a sexy young woman and therefore she was treated in a lot of ways because of that. And also I think that affected how she felt about herself in the world too, but it's just such a messy knot of, of self-identity and social construct and how, how that changes behavior and how you're treated. Tell me about what it was like for you when you learn she died. It's a beautifully, you know, dramatic Mm -hmm. written piece in the book. But part of what I'm wondering about, you know, you just gave us a a really good developmental description of how friendships change over time. And many of us had, you know, friends who we were on the swim team with when we were eight and we didn't even know them anymore, speak to them, or we were in very different social circles by the time we were 20. So part of what I'm wondering about is you don't, you don't get any more of that time with a friend. There is no, we get to see whether she circles back. So what was it like learn of her death the way that you did and then have that sort of complicated pull around how you felt about her when she died? I mean, that's exactly what made this feel very complicated and confusing at the time. When I was 21, I learned in my town newspaper in New Jersey that Ashley had been found murdered at her home in Los Angeles. And 
I learned the news visiting my parents for the weekend. They had seen it in the paper first. We sat down. We had this sort of somber moment of like reading this article and there wasn't that many details in it. And secretly I had, I had this information that I hadn't shared around what I knew about how she was living at the end of the last time I saw her, which was that she was involved in sex and, and the sex industry and stripping and drugs. And I immediately thought there must be some connection between what happened there. Was it something with a drug dealer? Was it something with an angry client? That's immediately where my mind went, but yet I didn't, I didn't share any of that with my parents. And I also just felt really numb because a lot of what I grapple with in the book, which I'm sure you recognize from other complicated grief situations is because the last time we saw each other was so confusing and actually negative in a lot of ways, it was confusing to me, like, who, who was I mourning? I write that in the book. Was I mourning, you know, the childhood nine-year-old that was my closest friend that I played with, but she didn't exist anymore? Or was I mourning this other woman that I barely recognized that I felt terrible around in young adulthood? And, or was I mourning the sort of, ultimately, by the end, I, I come around to just that that it's, that it's a painful thing to recognize that you can start off in the same place with someone and end up in two completely different places. And for Ashley, it was a, such a tragic, painful place. And so a lot of the writing process and the reckoning in the book is, is just sort of making sense of that and how life contains so many things at once and, and pain and identity and growing up and how we ended up in two different places. It was really that. But of course, at the time, age 21, when I learned the loss, I didn't understand any of that, except all I knew was that I felt numb and I wasn't sure how to feel because I knew that the most recent time I'd seen Ashley was so complicated and negative. Yeah. And, but yet, you know, as I write about in the beginning of the book, obviously this loss and this thing that happened was was something that was part of my thoughts for years. And there were years went by where we didn't hear more information about if there was any leads in her killer and what had actually happened. We tried to be in touch with her family, but they were intermittently not, not available for connecting with us. And so as I grew into my twenties, I always still thought about her and wondered like, would I ever find out what really happened to her? Mm. And then as I became a writer, I thought, one day, if I ever have the confidence and resources to write a book, I want it to be about Ashley and figuring out what happened to her. Because the other thing I was realizing is as I started to talk about her story more with other people, I recognized that so many women had a friendship like that. So many people have had a friend who got away, someone who started out in the same place and ended up in very different places and that maybe they didn't die, but there was some kind of rift there and it feels painful to think of them and what might've been and the distance between you now. Everyone has that. And then I thought, that's a lot of what this book is about. And that's a universal theme that is coming up for me. And I also think, though I didn't understand it yet, what happened with Ashley and me in that last weekend in New York, there was some universal themes in there too, with kind of jealousy and identity and how you you look at your friends when you're a young adult and you're trying to figure out how to live your own life and your friends' decisions can feel like a referendum on your own life and things can feel so fraught. And so I knew all of that was 
something that could connect with other people. And then I had the whole like nuts and bolts crime story of like, what the hell happened there? Which that was the part that felt most out of my depth. And so I was like, I'll never be able to do this, but maybe one day. But then I, in 2008, I had gotten like what was at the time my dream job as an editor of New York Magazine. And I was feeling like I'm really gotten to the next level in media and I'm connected to this great company with all these resources. And I used to Google her every few months or a year. And I Googled her again, like I usually do, or actually at work, I used LexisNexis, which I never had access to before, but suddenly I did at work. And that's when I discovered that there had been a major break in her case just a couple of months earlier, and that a man was in custody in connection with her murder, as well as another murder and an attempted murder. And he was a person of interest in a fourth murder and that he was going to be on trial in LA. And I was like, what the fuck? Right. (laughs) Oh my God. It's all, It's it's all happening. It's all out there. Suddenly I felt like this is so much bigger than I could have imagined. And it also feels public. It feels like this private obsession is now out in the world in like LA County court and, and it's major. And he's, and this is an alleged serial killer. And what is the story here? And so that's when I thought it's now or never to really dig in and try to try to either investigate or or try to see if I can really write something here. So that began the long process of doing, doing my own reporting and fact finding and trying to figure out the narrative and writing a book proposal and going through that whole process. And it, it ended up being from the time that I felt like in earnest, I was going to try this, which was 2008. It was nine years, nine years later is when my book came out. It was a long, long process. And now it's been almost four years since then. So still talking about it. And this year is 20 years since her death. So it's a, it's a huge chunk of time that has spanned so many things that I'm kind of still talking about her, thinking about her, having new insights about, you know, all grief and loss and and all of it. Right. And presumably if she hadn't died and maybe even the way that she died, some of this would have gone unprocessed or unthought of. It's not that the events of the friendship sort of unstitching itself wouldn't have been relevant, but maybe it wouldn't have been so explored. There's a million things that I found, found fascinating about the writing of it. And again, I do think you describe really beautifully your twenties. And I say this to all of my clients that are in their twenties, like it is a developmental explosion. Yeah. And for women in particular, it has a competitive edge that does not exist in the same way for men. It's a life achievement for a woman to have, to find a romantic relationship and lock that in, in a way that validates them. And and that is not the same for men, that men do not report having anxiety about whether or not they're a reasonable person or a good person, whether they are or not in a relationship. And that's a huge blanket statement, but it's generally true. Yeah. So women have this other added edge that they're in competition with each other, just like you can have a nine month old that's walking and an 18 month old that's not walking yet, but everyone's going to end up walking someday that there's this really wide um, breadth of what that development looks like in its twenties. 
Mm -hmm. There's this moment where that just, I was like, oh, this makes so much sense to me. And this is what I would do where you fly out under the guise of being a reporter, you fly out to attend the trial. Actually that happens twice, right? Well, in the book, the trial was delayed for 11 years. And so the book that I wanted to write attending the trial was, didn't end up happening. So the court the court. In the oh, book, right. It's so it's not the trial. Preliminary hearing because the trial ended yeah. up not even happening until after the book came out. I'm so using the wrong word. It's, you end up in the courtroom with other female reporters. Yeah. Yeah. And because you have the status of also being a friend, you yeah. sort of get tapped in a different way yeah. amongst this collection of people. It struck me as sort of that way in which in our 20s, when we're not sure what makes us valuable and we're not sure what we're capable of, we're looking for the, the edge of what makes me special. And you write that with some conflict. This woman says to you something like, oh, I'm so, so sorry. Right. But that doesn't totally land because you're not there just mourning her. Yeah, yeah the, the scene was there was only press in the room at that time because the preliminary hearings are... I think it was, I found it fascinating, but it is for the most part, just kind of a procedural thing that's done. It's not the same as a trial where there's friends and family and support and there are no witnesses. There's no jury. So it's just a, it's a mini trial proceedings where both sides have witnesses and testimony. And at the end, the judge rules whether there is enough evidence to have a real trial. So this was the first court appearance that I got to go to. And there was the only people in the courtroom were press. And so I just sat with them because I didn't want to sit like by myself and stick out. That was a whole other thing that I write about in the book. The whole experience of going into court was really vulnerable and overwhelming. And I didn't realize that everyone sees you and you can't go into a courtroom and not have people wonder who is this person and why are they there? You can't be invisible at that time, still, I didn't know how I was going to introduce myself and define myself about why I was there because I didn't have a clear sense of why I was there, except I, I wanted to be there and I wanted more information and I was processing something. Of course, in courtroom situations, in a lot of situations, people want more of a black or white identification for you. And so in a courtroom, you can be press, you can be like law enforcement, or are you a friend of the victim or friend or family member of the victim? So this district attorney, after the day's testimony came over to the only three people in the room and were like, who are you writing for? Who are you writing for? Who are you writing for? And I was like, I'm uh, Ashley's childhood friend. And then suddenly she was like, oh, like treated me very different than the press and was like, I'm so sorry. Here's my card. Let me know if you have questions about anything. And then the press women were like, oh, look at you. And then I felt like, is this okay? Because I'm sort of lying here because I am maybe writing something too, but I know I'm not just press, but what am I? That was like the central driving force of the book because I felt it every time I went into court. I felt that sort of discomfort. I learned a lot from the media people and they became, they became contacts for my 10 years of working on the book. Even, even when I ended up doing media interviews also, I made, stayed in touch with these 48 hours people. And then I was interviewed for the show and same with People Magazine, all 
that stuff. It was a weird double role that I was doing. So I learned a lot about, oh, here's how you sit in a courtroom and take notes when you don't have any personal connection to this, what's going on. And I often wished that I could be bolder or something if I was just that. But yet have, being this other thing of the friend and the writer definitely, I think, made some people uncomfortable or yeah. it came across as like, is it unseemly what I'm doing? I used to worry, do I come off as like this woman who I think was maybe on The Real Housewives briefly, who was Nicole Brown Simpson's friend, yeah. wrote this kind of somewhat trashy book that they that was right. considered like disrespectful to Nicole's memory. Am I going to be seen as that, that I'm coming in kind of capitalizing yeah but the thing is now I've learned very complicated because what we didn't say is that you know Ashley was a beautiful girl that lived in Hollywood and dated a lot of drugs and sex but there was this celebrity element to her story as well because another crazy twist is that on the night of her murder she was supposed to be going on a date with Ashton Kutcher when that was revealed a few years after her death because Ashton wasn't that famous at the time he was a young guy about her age who was starting on that 70s show but a few years later he married Demi Moore and became a lot more famous and there was a lot more getting done about him and then it was uncovered like there was a big celebrity story about Ashton's connection to this tragic night right so from then on there was much much more media interest about Ashley and I think that colored also how I felt about whether it was appropriate what I was doing or not. And I used to think if I bet if my childhood best friend was a librarian who was murdered, I would not be getting the same judgmental stuff about digging into her life. It's something about the, the facts of her life that I don't judge, but that there's a lot of judgment around. And I think people think even just discussing those things is disrespectful. And Absolutely. that there, there was a lot of that messy stuff wrapped up in, I think, how some pushback I got in, in writing the book and also leading to some anxiety myself in, in pushing further because I was very conscious of not wanting to be seen as whatever, disrespectful, capitalizing, all of that. Part of what you're talking about from, from my perspective is that concept of being, this, this is not my phrase, but grief adjacent. The first person I've heard yeah. that is Nora McInerney from terrible. Thanks for asking. I think it is an actual grief term, which is this complicated space that we have to fill, which is the story is not my story, but I'm impacted by it. I have grief and loss associated with this. It, it would have also been different if she were your sister or your twin right. sister, or right. that, that part of it is about the relationship as much as it is sort of the salaciousness right. of Ashley's actual story. And I think, you know, if it were your sister, people might be quicker to say, oh, look at this. This is, again, this is a grief term, traumatic growth. She right. was able to, in processing her grief, find her voice as a writer and make all these professional connections right. and explore herself. When we are comfortable, right, with the, with the relationship and we, right. it all makes mathematical sense. That it's acceptable to others. And yeah. Yeah. That we can frame it in this way. One of the, one question that comes up in my office a lot is like, should I go to the funeral? I remember having right. this conversation with my mom 
she had, my mom was, you know, had six kids was like a consummate mother kind of was, had a little bit of a martyr quality to her. She was always doing stuff for other people. And a woman who had been a very good friend of hers died suddenly. And that woman's husband had died years before also suddenly. And they had two children, one who was my age and one who was younger. And my mom was just bereft at the loss of this friend who had lived in Connecticut. It was a really striking loss. They didn't see each other often, but they were intimately close And she said to me, you know, I don't think I'm going to go to the funeral. And I was already deep in grief and loss work at this point. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? You're not going to go to this. You know, you have to go to the funeral. And she was like, well, you know, I don't think anyone's going to need me there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, is, is that your definition of what is supposed to be happening? You can only be in feeling if it's at the whim of someone else. And so I've had that in the back of my mind for a long time when I'm talking to people about grief, right? People understand that when I'm overcome with sadness, I cry and I understand that as mourning and sadness crying. I have a number of people who are deeply confused about a 20 year lifelong story that they continue to to tell as being- grief, right? That's part of a mourning process and, or going to your grandmother's house and, you know, packing up all of her items. Yeah. You know what? That's a terrible task, but it's also grief work. You're also remembering the tablecloth and making sure that your aunt gets the silver. So part of when you were talking about it, I really was taking in the notion of it's very complicated when your relationship yeah. 100% clear. I'm talking to someone who lost, lost a love that was an affair. And in that there was no validation, right. no acknowledgement. She couldn't acknowledge it. And she had a lot of shame about the fact that she was yeah. even in this relationship. Yeah. Or I, you could be divorced from someone for 10 years and then they die. And it's like major mourning. I mean, there's, you know, yeah. there's all sorts of situations like that. But ultimately it's sort of, you know, you're the only person on the inside of your story and it's not, are you entitled to tell the story in some, when I was in an inpatient treatment, I had this therapist who I adored and I kept saying like, my mom would be completely destroyed if she understood how sick I became after she died because I had really terrible PTSD and this pretty acerbic, like very funny therapist was like, I don't know, it's a pretty good tribute to yeah. your mom. Like you had basically a nervous breakdown. Like that's pretty good. Yeah. Like that's a, mm-hmm. a big present. I just hadn't really thought of that, yeah. but, 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 you know, when I look at your book, people can say you guys weren't even right. really friends when she died, right. but, or you can look at it and say, wow, look at the depth of feeling Yeah, for 20 years, you know, yeah. honoring sure. the friendship of this childhood with, you know, I appreciate that you said that. That's definitely how I feel. And I think that you probably recognize as well, too, if you have a, ch- a childhood loss or, you know, I consider myself pretty much a child at 21 when Ashley died, you know, the, the depth of feeling grows as I grow up, you know, like maybe I was not able to feel as much at the time, but I definitely do now. And I write a little bit about this in the epilogue, like 
in some ways, the loss becomes more profound as I grow up and go through life stages that she didn't get to and recognizing the older I get, the more, the younger 22 is that when she died and how absurd it is that that could be someone's whole life. That makes sense to me. You know, the book is from, is it five years ago, four years ago? How do you carry it even since, you know, you spent nine years writing the book, you know, her death is 20 years ago. It was a 20 year long friendship. How do you reflect on it and carry it now? I mean, you're, you're married, you have a child, you have a job, you have a different relationship with yourself as a woman. How do you think about or feel about looking back at that friendship now? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's very, it's very wrapped up in the book for me. I think that, you know, I, I made this thing that, that explores all these complicated feelings that aren't really ever resolved. And that that's sort of still a living thing that keeps her, her story and these ideas alive. And that, you know, when I still hear from readers regularly who reach out about finding this book. Some, some readers say, you know, I had a friend that died and your book really helped me. Mm. Often I've been getting like older men who have found the book and saying like, this helps me understand my daughter and her life better. I've had a few of those recently. Anyway, to me, it's it's a privilege and it feels like a tribute to her that this book and her story and even my imperfect, like complicated grapplings with it are going to continue to be out there and create new ideas and insights and conversations for people. And what I used to say is like, I don't, there's no trite way to be like, read, you know, read my book and like, oh, call your childhood friend you haven't talked to. That's not it. I don't actually think that there's no bigger message. Maybe if Ashley hadn't died, our friendship still would have ended. And maybe that's okay. I think it's okay for friendships to end. But yet, I do think, you know, honoring the, the childhood people that sort of still live within you that made you is is an important thing. And that's a real thing. And so as I get older, I just recognize how much people who aren't here anymore still have shaped me and my identity and will continue to. And as I continue to talk about her, that's, that's sort of honoring her. I mean, the other thing is that this court case is still not over and that will continue to kind of keep things active for many more years. Weirdly too. I still get so crazy interview requests or, you know, all of that happening. There's that kind of like, logistical level of how things are still alive because the court case is still active to me connecting with readers about these ideas telling her story hearing from people that have read the book is my way of of honoring her and and I feel like it will always be present for me because of these things I think one thing that we would all always like is an instruction manual on how to do hard things. And I think grief and loss is right there at the top of the hardest things there are. And that depending on who you lose and when you lose them in life, it has varying degrees of hard, but it's always hard. And I think part of what is unique about the book and the story is that you are reflecting over time about a woman who's in a period of time that's really 
it's a developmentally important, significant, it's very compelling. And you write about it, as I said in the beginning, very much from your own voice. It's not what did the world do to you, but it's, it's about how you feel yourself in the world. And if I were going to give grievers any advice, it's to center themselves in this story Mm. and not assume that anyone outward has anything good or bad to offer them that sort of like coaching, it's not about doing it right or getting through it. It's about growing the capacity to be the person that has to continue to do it. So I, I I use Uh. analogy of sort of growing the muscles and you already had a talent, which was writing And also I think researching and being, you know, a curious sort of journalist kind of mind. And then that becomes the vehicle to allow almost in a titrated way, your grief, your, you know, not complicated in the technical term because complicated grief in the grief world means something different. And in my opinion, it's stupid, but complicated in the, in the colloquial way, it's a complicated thing to grieve. And and I think, I think the, I think your story and the way that you tell the story reminds us that everybody has to do their grieving their own way. And so one thing that I say to people is just instinctively, what do you want to do? People say, well, I'm really afraid if I go to bed, I'm never going to get back up. And I, you know, that isn't generally what happens. Yeah. So if you feel like you need to rest, try resting and then see what comes of that. But yeah. many times people will come to me with things maybe even from their childhood. They used to like to paint. They used to play the piano. They used to like to run a lot. They really miss being by the ocean. Things that present themselves that weren't otherwise there until they were back grieving. And so, and yeah. you know, this story for me, I was a writer in high school. I, that really was not what I continued to do. And after my mom died, writing became like a compulsion. And I know you've heard that story from people. I have a lot of writers who reach out to me um, because I talk about that as, you know, that is my grief work. And it, it happens to be a process that also is going to have a product, right? Like you're helping me write a memoir, but for many people, it's just a process. We're just writing as a way to get through. And I might have garbled, terrible journals that have helped me sort of move through my feelings. So that's the other piece. And I mentioned it before, like, I think we're all looking for when something terrible happens for it to have an element that doesn't just detract from our lives, Mm -hmm. but that can give us something. And so, you know, listening to you describe that it's still a story that this trial hasn't finished that, you know, that it's, given you something. And part of what it's given you is a, is a mechanism to continue to have feeling about mm-hmm. this loss, yeah. this totally yeah. traumatic and dramatic yeah. loss in yeah. your life. Thank you for putting that so eloquently. I I'm always looking for the threads. And to me, you know, the, the, if we can consciously grow our capacity to understand what works for us as a tool, not the lists. There's a lot of grief and loss people out there that say, don't do this, do do this. I appreciate those lists. I mean, I had a client not so many years ago that had an aunt that had a deviled egg recipe and she probably spent two years 
trying every weekend, making a lot of eggs, yeah. trying to find. And that when I said to her, well, you were grieving. She was like, no, yeah. I was just making eggs. And yeah. I was like, no, that was your grief work. Nobody That's would otherwise right. make those eggs. Right. So I'm, I'm really appreciative about, of how you told the story and you talking about it today. Cause I think it just reflects mm-hmm. the real complexities that yeah. having, losing someone just sort of how it tattoos our story for yeah. the rest of our lives. Yeah. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Megan. Thanks I'm for very having grateful. me. Yes. Talk to you soon. Okay. You so Take much. care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Grief is My Side Hustle and allowing me to introduce you to my editor, Carolyn Murnick. If you're interested in Carolyn's work or learning more about doing writing, grief writing, any kind of writing, her information is in our show notes. If you haven't already left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it. It helps other people, other grievers, people who are interested in grief and loss, find the podcast by suggesting it to them in their algorithm. Thanks so much. Can't wait for the next episode.